Welcome to the Business in Development podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Business and Development Studies at Copenhagen Business School. With this podcast, we wish to bring you the latest insights from our research on the roles of business, government and civil society in promoting inclusive and sustainable development in the global south. My name is Sarah Netta. I'm the producer of this podcast. In each episode, you will meet one of my colleagues and their guests who will present their take on pressing development issues. With this podcast, we wish to create a platform for a wide variety of actors and to combine conversations with thought leaders, practitioners, world-leading experts and voices from the field. In this episode, you will hear from Professor Lindsay Whitfield and Professor Faisal Ismail, Director of the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance at the University of Cape Town. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. In this episode, our listeners get the chance to be a fly on the wall in a conversation that you have had with Professor Faisal Ismail from the University of Cape Town. Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about the context of this conversation? Yes, so I'm also uh, an honorary professor at the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance, where Professor Ismail is the director, and I have been working with them for about a year now. Professor Ismail and others at the school are playing an advisory role to the Africa Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat. Uh, most of the negotiations have been concluded, but there are a few sticking points among the African countries. And in particular, one area where there's a big sticking point is the tariff headings related to the textile and apparel sector. So I have been working with um, Professor Ismail and others to try to provide research evidence base to push those negotiations along, to help the African ministers who are negotiating this find a common ground. And one way that they can do that is by having a better picture of what's actually going on on the ground in their textile and apparel industries. They don't always have that picture. Uh, so I recently produced a quite detailed report called Current Capabilities and Future Potential of African Textile and Apparel Value Chains. This is available uh, as a working paper on the CBDS website where I basically go through what is the current state of production in cotton and uh, textile and, and in garment assembly, and what would be the implications of different positions, trade positions and different uh, tariffs, but particular whether they should have single or double transformation. This is some of the issues that are being debated at the moment. It's a 60-page report, so no minister is going to read it. So I'm working with some others to produce a 10-page uh, summary which also looks at the potential to attract investment into this sector. And that will feed into the discussions that they are having in early February, where hopefully they can find some sort of compromise. I was actually at the University of Cape Town for the podcast takes place. I was there to be part of a physical meeting and discussion with industry actors from South Africa's textile and apparel industry. South Africa has taken a particular position on what the rules in the trade agreement should be. So as part of that, I was brought in as an industry expert, having discussions about what kind of vision South Africa sees for its own industry and then how that fits into a regional vision and how then they can that matters for the rules of origin and the debates around the tariff in the Africa continental free trade area. 
Um, so I was basically at the Nelson Mandela School to be part of that discussion when I then sat down with with Faisal after that meeting to do this podcast. I think a lot of people don't know about the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, what it is, why it matters. I thought it would be an interesting topic. I think when you hear it in a moment, you'll see that Professor Ismail provides very interesting insights into this. The first part is a quite succinct history of the African continent, but it's not just any history because he's part of that history. He was in the first government uh, after the end of apartheid in South Africa. So he summarizes this history and also the history of trade on the continent um, from his perspective and his insight of being part of it. And then he goes on to talk about why it's important to have this free trade area, how it's more than just a free trade area. It's hoped that it can also drive industrialization by building regional industries and regional value chains. And to do that, you need to free trade. So it's not just about trade and sort of this broad economic liberalization point of view. And then at the end, we talk sort of frankly, or I push him to, to think about what are the challenges to doing this. There have been a lot of attempts to do this over decades, and many of them haven't been implemented or fail because of political economy issues. And so I think his insights on why or why not it will succeed this time around are quite interesting. My name is uh, Lindsay Whitfield. I'm a professor at Copenhagen Business School in Business and Development. And I'm here today with Professor Faisal Ismail, who's director of Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance at the University of Cape Town. And we're going to talk about the Africa Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, what it is and why it's necessary. But first, um, Professor Ismail, can you tell us um, a little bit about your background and how you came involved with the Secretariat? Yes, so thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. I am you know, a trade negotiator. I, I started um, work at the uh, Department of Trade and Industry in 1994. You may remember this was the time when the new government of Nelson Mandela came into being. And I was really fortunate that um, I was asked by the first minister of trade and industry, Trevor Manuel, to... Um, come and work in his office and uh, help answer all the letters that were coming in from all over the world for the new South Africa to begin trading and building a new trade relationship with uh, the world. Uh, So that was my first task. And um, of course, the rest is history. I worked for over 20 years as a trade negotiator. And uh, we had to start this is the new South Africa. We had to start with our neighbors here in Southern Africa. The Southern African Customs Union is a group of five countries. South Africa is a member. And then we had to create a new relationship with the, the rest of Southern Africa. Mm. So there was a negotiation. We had to start with um, Zimbabwe and Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania and others in a group of um, what is now 16 countries that constitute the Southern African Development Community. Uh, So my um, history uh, goes back to 1994. I also worked um, uh, with uh, many other countries and regions in the world, including the European Union, uh, with whom we negotiated a free trade agreement. 
So this is how I started my career and um, I was very involved uh, with the World Trade Organization because I was asked to go there to Geneva and negotiate for South Africa in the World Trade Organization and uh, I was ambassador of South Africa to the WTO and on my return to South Africa I decided to transition and uh, work in academia. Mm. That's how I ended up here <laughs> at the University of Cape Town. And now I'm the professor and uh, the director of the Nelson Mandela School of and Public And ha- how old is the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance? It's a young school. You know, universities, uh, if you're 10 years old, is very young. <laughs> <laughs> so the university itself, of course, is um, an old university. It's been here for almost 100 years. And uh, the, we have a very good business school here at UCT called the Graduate School of Business, which has been in existence for about 50 years. But we don't have a public policy school or a school of government. So this was mm-hmm. a gap in mm-hmm. a, uh, an excellent university. This mm-hmm. is Africa's best university. We've been number one for a number of years. And so um, my colleague uh, and my predecessor, Uh, Alan Hirsch started the school 10 years ago and he identified this gap and um, the um, vice-chancellor at the time, Max Price, agreed that this was something we needed to do. Uh, So it's a unique school because it doesn't just focus on the governance challenges and the public policy concerns of the South African government, but at its um, inception, the vision was for the school to um, focus on the, the continent as a whole. Mm. And so it's a continental public policy school, the first of its kind, uh, a huge vision and, of course, a huge challenge. Um, so I'm very privileged to be um, now the director of the school and uh, continuing to build it. And so... Can you tell us a little bit about the um, AFC-FTA Secretariat and the advisory board and your role on the board? Yes. So the African continental free trade uh, area is a very exciting uh, development on the African continent because um, it emerged um, after a long period of time when there was a lot of pessimism in Africa about regional integration uh, about the unity of the continent and about actually the growth and development prospects of the continent. Um, and uh, you will recall that prior to the, uh, the new millennium, there was a lot of pessimism mm-hmm. about Africa. Mm-hmm. But of course we had, in the first decade of the, of the new millennium, we surprised everyone on the upside because... Africa began to grow, and it began to grow um, at a rapid pace, um, with some countries growing at uh, 13%, like Mozambique, others like uh, Angola, you know, Angola was growing at 17% per annum, and Ethiopia growing at about 11% per annum. On average, the whole continent was growing at over 5%, which was just absolutely extraordinary, for a continent Mm. with a history like ours of um, low growth, high levels of debt, and a lot of poverty. So 
This is the context for um, the um, revitalization of the idea of integration and unity on the African continent. It was an idea that was always there. In fact, even during the period of um, uh, colonization, many uh, of the leaders of the liberation movements uh, who were in exile had this idea of unity. And the idea of unity of the continent, um, which was articulated by many leaders like Kwame Nkrumah and uh, Leopold Senghor and uh, others, uh, became known as Pan-Africanism. So there's a big literature on it. It's the dream of unity uh, by people who were in exile. But when they returned, they faced the reality of uh, civil war in some countries, the Cold War. It was a time when, you know, the big powers were fighting and there were um, proxy wars being fought in Africa. Uh, but also um, the challenge of economic development was not easy. And uh, so this dream of unity uh, was um, put back. And, uh, you know, in 1963, uh, governments came together to create the Organization of African Unity. So it was a first step forward. But the idea of economic integration only emerged again in the 1980s when um, a fellow called uh, Adebayo Adedeji, who was the first executive director of the Economic Commission for Africa, he came up with an, a vision for um, the integration of the continent. Um, and he called it, uh, the first uh, draft was called the Lagos Plan of Action. Mm. And it became known in 1991, the OAU passed this uh, plan, a more elaborated plan, which was called the Abuja Treaty. So the Abuja Treaty first elaborated um, the mechanisms and the um, uh, working um, uh, plan for the building of a continental free trade area. And in fact, it uh, broke up the continent into uh, different sub-regions, into eight sub-regions, because Adedeji felt that this was too awesome a task, it was too big a task. So we rather started in sub-regions, which were closer to each other geographically, but also socially and culturally. So Southern African countries, he said, you know, let's start there, and then in East Africa and West Africa. And so emerged formations like SADC, the Southern African Development Community, which then at its inception was called SADCC because uh, the Southern African Development and Coordination Committee because South Africa was not in. At the time, South Africa was an apartheid regime. Mm. And then in East Africa, we did have the East African Community with... Uh, Kenya and uh, Uganda and Tanzania creating the first successful integration um, uh, block. Uh, and in West Africa, Ke uh, Nigeria and Ghana led the way and created uh, ECOWAS. Um, so this is how you know different uh, sub-regional formations were created. And of course he saw this as a step-by-step -step linear process. We would start with preferential trade, we'd move on to free trade, and then we'd create a customs union, 
bringing, um, creating one external tariff. And then, of course, we'd add to free trade, the movement of labor and capital, and we would create a, a common market. And then he envisaged that there would be a monetary union where the um, central banks would coordinate and um, their interest rates and macroeconomic policy. And he then envisaged that all these sub-regions would coordinate their efforts and would create um, an, an African economic community. Of course, this didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> why didn't it happen? So a lot of my students ask me, why didn't it happen? Why did it take so long? And the answer really lies in the political economy of the time, mm. because the 1980s were a very, very bad period for Africa. This was a time when there was a lot of crisis. Most economies were contracting. Right. And in Africa, it was worse, because there was high debt levels, um, there was a, a increasing poverty and uh, low growth. And then, of course, as you know, there was the uh, what is now... Uh, well known in the literature, the intervention by the World Bank and the IMF in the form of structural adjustment programs. And um, there's a lot of critique of this now in the literature, and even the World Bank itself, when it reflects on that period, um, it makes the point that they went too far. They asked countries to liberalize, to privatize, to deregulate, and they didn't support this social adjustments that would result from this type of liberalization. So many countries um, went into a worse period of decline, economic decline. They just didn't have the capacity to adjust, so they moved too fast with liberalization and with privatization. And many of the gains that were made in the 1960s by some countries when they did industrialize were lost in the 80s and the 90s. And so often people say, in the economic development literature, that this was a period of a lost decade, or perhaps two lost decades, the 80s and the 90s. And this is why the, uh, the period of the first decade of the new millennium is so exciting, mm. because that's the background for Africa, when you know people were giving up hope. And in fact, there was a front page of The Economist in uh, early uh, 2000, which simply said, Africa, the hopeless continent. That was, that was the headline. And it was a reflection of the, um, the loss of hope that not only Africans themselves had about their prospects, but uh, international investors. Uh, so the turnaround in the first decade was remarkable because now for the first time we see the growth and a new narrative emerged and the same newspaper or the same magazine, uh, The Economist, now began to talk about Africa rising. Mm. And that became the new narrative. So is that when political traction for, the, for an Africa free trade area returned? Or who are the driving forces behind? Yes, that's an exciting uh, story because this was the background for African governments now to become much more... Um, excited about the possibility for regional integration. As they were growing, they realized that on their own they were too small. And they started talking about how we could, these sub regional formations could work together. 
And so the first three uh, regions that came to talk to each other were the southern African one, SADC, East Africa, um, that is the East African community, and COMESA, which was the common market for Eastern and Southern Africa. So these three uh, groupings um, came together to create, uh, to launch a tripartite free trade agreement, which again was an exciting development because it was the first time that there was a vision for a free trade arrangement from Cape Town to Cairo. Oh, and, and when was that exactly? So this was launched in 2011. 2011, okay. And by 2015, they concluded. They concluded the framework agreement for a tripartite free trade agreement. And very interestingly, it was at the same time, literally a week apart, when a new, the West Africans <laughs> leaders were meeting with the, with the others and, and said, why are we not in this? <laughs> <laughs> and so the ne very next week they launched, uh, for the first time, a continent-wide free trade agreement. Because the rest said, you know, this was exciting. They didn't think it could work. Or maybe there was, you know, there were other reasons for it. But they were not part of the initial initiative for regional integration. But when they saw the success, they, they, they felt that they should be part of it too. And so a week later, the, all the presidents got together at a summit here in Johannesburg and launched a negotiation for a continental free trade agreement. So this was 2015. Mm. And so if you had to summarize it very briefly to those who are not familiar with the AFCFTA, what, what does it aim to do? It's a free trade area, but if you could explain in the African continent, like what are the aims and what are the tools in, in it? Yes. So free trade agreements these days worldwide are not just about trade. Everywhere when we negotiate a free trade agreement, uh, of course, uh, the first um, element uh, is the opening of markets, and that starts with the reduction of trade um, barriers. And usually you'd have uh, tariff barriers so that the customs duties at the border, often countries protect their markets by raising customs duties. And then the second barrier would be the non-tariff barriers and these would be regulations at the border. Now there could be different types of regulations like um, SPS, so SPS is health uh, standards could be for plant health or animal health. Countries have to protect themselves, but sometimes they go um, too far and they become protective. And of course, you have other barriers that, or other um, legitimate um, uh, regulations that could become barriers, like import licensing. So if you mm -hmm. if you they're too stringent to, and uh, they they could prevent countries from trading with each other. Um, so these non-tariff barriers at the border are reduced and this is how in the World Trade Organization um, when we launched a global uh, trading system way back in 1948 we called it at the time we called it the GATT the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs this is where we started we started with tariff liberalization and we started reducing these barriers non-tariff barriers 
So this is the core element of a free trade agreement. But these days, um, when we talk about free trade, we also include um, uh, agreement on rules that impact on trade. So we call it trade-related issues, oh, like okay. issues related to investment, mm. competition, um, and uh, in some cases... Um, the environment, so environmental goods and services, and um, there could be standards. So, you know, um, standards are things that are related to a product standard. So every product would have a standard that uh, your domestic testing and laboratory uh, standard setting body would uh, set for, for a particular product. Sometimes it's done for uh, safety, because you don't want a toy, for example, to be dangerous for your children. So you have a standard. So this happens across the board, say in auto components or in electronics. But if everyone has a different standard, mm -hmm. then you can't have trade. So we have to harmonize standards. So we have to get our authorities to talk to each other. So we have standards and we try to harmonize those standards to promote trade. And then, of course, more recently we have started talking about uh, environmental standards. So um, countries would say that we want to protect the environment and so you can't produce this product unless it also includes some um, elements to reduce the harm to the, to the environment. And then if it doesn't have that, it doesn't mm. qualify. Mm. It won't have the environmental standard. So you negotiate this because you want countries to talk to each other to harmonize those standards, to recognize each other's standards so that trade can flow. Mm. So this is, these are all elements of a free trade agreement. So obviously the, the African continental free trade area is meant to, um, to promote increased trade among countries, among the 55 African countries. So that presupposes that there wasn't much trade before. So maybe you can say a little bit about why African countries have not traded more with each other compared to other regional blocs uh, in the global economy. And also particularly why, yeah, the, you know, why are tariffs still so high or non-tariff barriers? Some say that it's harder to trade within the continent. Yes. It's harder to move goods from Ghana to Nigeria, yes. or it's hard for South Africa, or not hard, but expensive for South African spinners to buy Malian cotton than it is to buy it from, from China. Yes. So I think this is some of the, the economic development questions that, that we yes. grapple with. So yes, so there's, it is true that um, African countries have not been trading with each other as much as they should because you are neighbors and the easiest uh, countries to trade with are your next door neighbor. And we have seen uh, how countries that are in close proximity or adjacent to each other have um, reduced barriers and increased um, both trade but also economic growth and development. And a case in point is the European Union. And these countries, after the Second World War, um, decided that instead of competing with each other, they should cooperate. So the first agreement, for example, in the EU that was created was the steel and coal agreement. So instead of creating one steel industry in every country, they thought, let's cooperate 
and uh, co-invest, uh, create a, a joint market, a common market, uh, so that you could locate in one country and you could export your products to the other country, depending on which country had a better comparative advantage. So in the European Union, um, the countries trade uh, with each other to the extent of about 70% of their global trade. So 70% of all their trade with the world takes place between each other. So that's a large number, and that gives an indication of the power of trade and the ability of trade to stimulate economic growth and, and development. Now, the African continent um, has not been trading with each other for a number of reasons. The first, of course, is that they produce the same goods. Mm, and exactly. in most cases, these are commodities yeah. because African countries still are largely uh, mainly producers and traders of uh, agricultural and uh, uh, mining commodities. So they're producers of commodities and you can't trade you know, much with each other because you produce the same thing. So if you're all producing the same agricultural products, why would you trade it with each other? Uh, so that's one reason. But the other is that historically, um, African countries were trading with their colonial uh, mother countries. And so these took the form of a, a structural sort of dependency path. So if you were trading with France, you were in West Africa, you know, there, there were established trade linkages. And if you were if you were in East Africa, like Kenya, you had relations with the UK, you exported all your tea, you know, and coffee to the UK. And and the same with, with you know, everyone else. So this is one of the reasons for low uh, trade flows between each other. But of course, uh, I think the main reason for, for uh, very low trade has to do with two factors. The one is that uh, African countries... Are, uh, have very little manufactured products that they process and um, and that you know they can they can trade with each other as intermediate products or fully finished products, um, and so uh, that's one reason why you have such low trade. The other is the huge structural barriers to trade um, that arise from the lack of intra-regional infrastructure. Mm. So most yeah. of our infrastructure was directed at exports out of the country to the mother country. And so you'd have a road maybe to the port uh, from inland, but you don't have a road from uh, your country to another country within uh, the continent. So say, um, uh, you know, Mozambique um, and... Um, uh, Malawi are next to each other. So Malawi, if it doesn't have um, uh, road and rail um, uh, to the ports, um, and if Mozambique's ports in, uh, say, in the north and uh, Nagala is not well developed, then you know you can't get your goods across from Malawi to to Mozambique and across. So that has been a huge barrier, and so therefore. It seems to me that one of the ways in which to address this is to ensure that the trade agreement, as we envisage it, 
in the AFCFTA will have to also ensure that alongside the trade um, liberalization process, we also have a very robust process of rebuilding and uh, building investment in uh, infrastructure uh, that connect the countries to each other. And there are lots of processes underway, like the North-South Corridor, you know, going up from South Africa all the way up into East Africa. You have uh, the Mombasa, Nairobi, Kisangani, or Kigali um, road and rail project. You have West African um, road and rail projects going from Abidjan to Lagos. So a number of these projects are beginning to build those cross-border infrastructure mm. programs. But going back to, to the tariff as- aspect of it, it is true that a lot of countries have relatively high tariffs. Mm-hmm. And that's probably because they don't have a differentiated tariff structure and that's just to, to everyone for everything being imported. But isn't that also a legacy of an approach to industrialization since the 60s around import substitution industrialization? Um, where countries thought that they had to create all the industries within their own. But it also meant, going back to what you said earlier, this idea of competition. Mm-hmm. So Ghana and Nigeria, Nigeria has often put up high tariffs on things like basic agro-processing manufacturing because they feel like they're competing with <laughs> with their neighbor. Um, so do you think that is a also explains the level of tariffs and also how is that being addressed with a sort of reframing, as you said, of not seeing yes. um, competition, but perhaps even developing what you have talked about a lot of regional industrialization, regional yes. value chains. Is that a big aspect? Yeah, so the trade story in Africa is much more complex um, because, you know, as I said, the 80s and the 90s, what you saw was um, the IMF and the bank literally took over macroeconomic policy for most countries. And in some countries, you know, they never left. You know, if you take the case of Ghana, we, I was there recently and talking to people there, they said since their independence, the IMF and the bank imposed, you know, structural adjustment programs of one sort or another about 17 times. And currently, they're back with the IMF and the bank and, and the World Bank because of high debt and they have a structural adjustment program underway. Um, and so Ghana, you know, has always uh, had a very liberal trade regime. As a result, uh, you know, if you if you are in Ghana and you walk around the informal sector, you find products from just about everywhere in the world because they have literally no barriers to entry. In other countries... Um, they do have some uh, tariff protection, but the tariff protection is inadequate or is easily circumvented. So if you take the case of Nigeria, lots of goods come in either through Benin, you know, through Togo, and find their way into the Nigerian market. So I was there a few years ago, um, just before COVID, and I was talking to the Nigerian Manufacturers Association and they had a long list of complaints, <laughs> the manufacturers, that I recognized because from South Africa, I also worked with the, the businesses here and they have similar about, uh, complaints about the government. But the biggest complaints about the government were that 
the borders were not being managed properly and because the customs authorities were not able to manage the both physically the the flow of goods that were coming through illegal imports but also uh, customs um, didn't have uh, adequate systems of monitoring and enforcement of uh, of the tariffs uh, and other regulations at the border and so you have um, a flow of goods coming in uh, in an irregular way in a way that business really isn't able to uh, manage because it's uncertain and uh, erratic and um, it uh, it undermines their in investment uh, and and causes a lot of disruption in the local market um, but having said that um, the the main uh, barriers really for intra-regional trade is not tariffs okay it's actually non-tariff barriers it's the inability of countries to manage their um, uh, their borders uh, because of really poor customs management and inadequate um, infrastructure so for example trucks would have to stand at the borders mm -hmm. for long periods of time because you just don't have the customs cooperation and harmonization in place. And when they cross the border, they'll have to pay high fees, maybe for road transportation. And their standards may be different, like railway gauges. So the train would have to stop. They'd have to take the goods off, put it on to another track because the same train can't go across because the railway gauges are different. Mm. So those are problems okay. that are bigger impediments so to trade. So you're saying that effectively the continent already has a free trade area in the sense yes. that it doesn't have high tariffs. It doesn't. But it then doesn't. how will the tool of a free trade area help to address these issues that you've outlined? Not the one necessarily of non-tariff barriers, standards, because that's part of the negotiation to standardize those yes. and to reduce non-tariff barriers. But how will a free trade area tool address issues of problems with uh, border so, enforcement yeah. around the, the continent. So, you know, Africa's trade um, regime uh, with each other is, you know, there are some areas of protection. So right now in the negotiations, about 11% of the tariff regime uh, is, uh, uh, you know, still under negotiation. And that's mainly in the area of uh, clothing and textiles. And that's because it's the only area where quite a few, say a significant number of African countries have production uh, in either cotton or in textiles or in apparel. So it was quite easy for countries to liberalize the rest because <laughs> yeah. they're really not producing. Mm. They're not producing, say, capital goods, for example. In fact, they're not producing hardly any manufactured products so there's no reason really to protect those areas. There are some areas of protection in very small and very specific agricultural commodities, but this is understandable because these are in basic staple foods. So mm. if you're producing cassava or maize and you, know, you, have, you have mainly small farmers, they family-owned, and they're very sensitive to, to imports, especially of lower cost um, and um, imports. 
and, and often in, in some countries we have high subsidies in agricultural commodities, particularly from outside of Africa, from Europe and the US, and, uh, and this is a threat to the survival of small farmers in, in African countries, particularly in staple foods. So in some of those areas, uh, specific areas, there are uh, relatively high tariffs and protection, but this, like, it constitutes a very tiny percentage of trade. So you were talking about the tariff barriers are basically negotiated, but a, a sticking point is textile and apparel. Yes. And we have actually been um, doing work in that area yes. lately. So how do you see if that's one of the major stumbling blocks to, to concluding this um, agreement? I know you, you say the question many have posed, oh, can 55 African countries really do this? But it looks like they are close to, yes. to really doing this, but there are some um, sticking points, and you are working closely with the secretariats yes. and the advisory board. So maybe you can just give us a little bit of a glimpse behind the scenes yes. on on the kind of diplomacy and and tools that are um, required to yes. to give movement in these areas, so that hopefully that it will become a reality. Yes. So Africa has not had the opportunity before to. Think about how to put in place the mechanism for the building of regional value chains. So as I was saying about the European Union, the first thing they did in 1951, they created the coal and steel agreement. This was a huge thing at the time. And then in 1963, they created the common agricultural policy. And what that did is immediately in these basic sectors like steel, and uh, coal, of course, because of energy, and, um, and in agriculture, they um, built cooperation. And so they were able to reduce tariffs uh, because they agreed on the modalities for mm. their businesses um, to interact, to cooperate, for joint ventures to take place between the companies. Later, it became more complex. And, you know, if you think of Airbus, for example, where you have, uh, you know, the UK, France, Germany, Sweden, you know, these countries, Italy to some extent, they're coming together to create, you know, the second biggest, I guess, long-haul airline um, uh, company in the world to compete against Boeing. Uh, they were only able to do this together. Uh, on their own, each of the countries would not be able to compete with, with Boeing because the United States... Um, has a you know, much more powerful and uh, competitive industry. So similarly, the African countries, they have not had this opportunity to, to think about which sector, in which sector can we work together where we have some comparative advantages. And here we have natural comparative advantages. So in the cotton, textiles, apparel sector, there are some, there is potential for cooperation and for countries to join forces and to uh, begin to build their um, value chains, of course, they would have to also attract investment in technology in uh, some of the more uh, capital-intensive manufacturing, which um, you know domestic producers or, uh, or industry may not be able to provide and they would have to go outside to global markets and, and attract that investment. But the first step is for the countries to come together and decide 
to create a framework for a common market, a common investment platform to encourage investors, to incentivize investors, because each country on the African continent is far too small for these huge investments that are required. And therefore, they have to cooperate and they have to convince the investors that the market is big enough. And this is the process that is underway. And I think that links to, you've often said that it's not about pure trade liberalization, but you put forth an alternative perspective that's partly a critique of liberalization. You've advocated the need for regional integration, but doing it slightly differently. And I think you also talk about that in your recent book, The African Continental Free Trade Area and Developmental Regionalism, a handbook. So maybe you could just explain a little bit more the ideas um, about how you link the free trade area with actually um, a regional perspective on industrialization. Yes. So this is something we have been thinking about for a few years, um, reflecting on, you know, the crisis in globalization and the crisis of um, free trade agreements and, and regional integration projects, including in the European Union, where we see uh, a lot of critique internally between countries, say Germany and, 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 and Greece, for example. We saw a lot of that protest by the Greeks because they found that, you know, more competitive German manufacturers simply swamped domestic manufacturers. And of course, you saw the British and how they had really felt that the benefits uh, were too low and the costs were too high for them. And whether you agree or not, but they felt that this was the case and they withdrew. Mm. It was uh, uh, the first country ever to withdraw from the European Union, but signifying a real retreat from globalization Mm -hmm. and a retreat from regional integration and liberalization. And you saw the same debate in the United States with Trump pushing back and uh, calling companies to return those that had offshored and um, also putting up barriers um, against uh, China in particular. And those barriers are still there, whether it's on steel or aluminium, (laughs) but also on a number of other products. So you're still there, even though Biden is now in, in government. The, the barriers, the trade barriers are still pretty high against China. And whether you agree or not about the validity of it, but the fact is that protectionism is on the rise. Mm. So in this context, what do we learn? So what we do learn, I think, is that if trade liberalization is allowed to uh, be left to the market on its own, the, it will uh, result in winners and losers. Mm. And it will result in those countries that are less capable at the beginning uh, to be um, to have to bear the costs of adjustment. And others that are more competent, they already have a, a, a stronger manufacturing sector, more diversified, they will be well positioned to export, whereas the others won't. And so you will have an inequality increasing. So you need to put in adjustment mechanisms. And there is some sort of thing like that in the EU um, with the eye adjustment mechanisms, their regional programs. And, of course, the Common Agricultural Policy was about that. It was about spreading the, um, the risk um, and, and sharing the resources. So they have a huge subsidy scheme in the EU for smaller countries and for even for regions which are poorer within countries like in Germany the, um, and, in, and in the UK, um, 
there, there are subsidies for, for small farmers. Now, we have to try and do this sort of thing. We have to find ways of compensating for the losers. And one way to do that is to manage the adjustment so that you know the adjustment is not rapid and um, doesn't cause immediate um, crises of production, say failure of production because the, the market is swamped by more competitive neighbors. And so therefore in the negotiations itself, I say the first point, my first pillar of what I call developmental regionalism is that there should be more flexibility and recognition for this need for adjustment so that the way the tariffs are reduced is differentiated. So some can move slower, some can move faster. Those that can move faster that are stronger, like South Africa in many sectors, they should just open up. And then, you know, others that are smaller, that need a, a little bit more time, should be given a little bit more time. So that's one element. The other element is, as I said, you know, if, you, if you're only producing commodities, you have very little to trade. So you've got to start building regional value chains where countries are processing. So, for example, you know, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, just two countries, and say with Nigeria, they produce 70% of the world's cocoa. Mm. Yet there's hardly any chocolate produced in Africa. And the reason for that is that Historically, almost all the cocoa goes out and very little is processed. What you're beginning to see is cooperation. So Ghana and um, Cote d'Ivoire, they're cooperating. They're working with the African Development Bank uh, and the African Exim Bank. Um, and they, they are beginning to put in place the mechanisms, the incentives to attract investors to begin to create... Um, say chocolate paste so where you start processing the cocoa into the next stage at least and and then slowly you'd have to build your own capacity but also bring in the investors to come in and produce chocolates you know in uh, in in either not in all the countries but maybe you know some parts of the production in one country or another so you then have cooperation taking place and you bring in the investors, but you need to have that sort of, you know, cooperation between countries. So similarly, you know, you can discuss this sector by sector, mm. and sometimes not all countries can gain, and not all countries, for example, in the automotive sector, not all countries will be able to assemble cars, but they may be able to produce some components. Maybe they can produce the car seats, you know. Many countries have cattle, but then they don't use the hides and process them to produce the fine leather that you need for, say, the car seats in, in luxury cars that uh, we, uh, we, we assemble uh, here in Africa. So you can find some components that individual countries can produce. You just have to start a discussion. And of course, you have to create the conditions for investments uh, to come. So that's the second element of my developmental regionalism approach. And of course, the third one is the issue of cross-border infrastructure. This is not easy because the costs of putting in road, rail, and port projects is uh, huge. But if you cooperate, if you work together, and if you have a long-term plan to mobilize uh, resources 
and to stimulate investment in industry, in agriculture and mining that um, can make those that road and rail project, the corridor, viable, you can attract the investment mm. and the finance. So we know that because we have some experiments that have worked, like the Mozambique-Johannesburg-Mozambique uh, corridor. It's working, and it's doubled the, the GDP of Mozambique just in a short period of time mm. because the number of projects that became viable in Mozambique but all along the corridor across uh, South Africa's uh, uh, Eswatini now, used to be called Swaziland, and Mozambique. So similarly, we're beginning to see that happening in other parts. So that's my third element. And of course, my fourth element is really about governance. I think that the experience of Ethiopia recently tells us that if you don't build stronger, more resilient democracies that create the stability, the predictability, the transparency, you will have setbacks and investors will not Mm. come or they will just go away. So we need to have um, pay attention equally to uh, much better governance in Africa. So just as a final question and perhaps a, a difficult one, since decolonization on the continent, we've seen a lot of ambitious pan-African initiatives put on the table and not really go anywhere, rise and fall. So what is it that makes you think that this time around it's going to be different? Yes, so there are no guarantees. But... We have much better conditions because there's been a learning experience. Mm. Uh, When you think about the global macro geopolitical environment, although, you know, you still have the superpowers, if you like, um, now different before it used to be the United States and Russia. Now you have China, you know, in play. And, you know, China, by the way, is one of the biggest investors in Africa in infrastructure. Also beginning to invest a lot more in manufacturing in Africa. You do have some competition between them, but you do have much stronger governments in Africa. We saw a spate of democratic uh, governance coming in in the first decade um, of the new millennium. Governments uh, moving away from sort of um, you know authoritarian dictatorships. Uh, commitment to multi-party democracy, constitutionalism. We have had some setbacks in the last few years, in some parts in the Sahel um, and in West Africa. But on the whole, there is a positive strengthening of governance. So I think that that is a crucial element to the optimism on the continent. But I think the other is that we do have a much stronger sense on the continent that they have to industrialize, they have to process uh, their, manufact- their, their commodities, whether it's agriculture or minerals, and countries are all investing in industrial policy. They're all concerned about investment, about attracting investment you know, into, into Africa. And um, you do have a, a growing uh, population, very youthful. The demographics are that you know, Africa's population is going to double by 2050, a young, more savvy, tech-savvy population that um, has the, the capacity to learn new skills, to leapfrog using the new technologies. And um, you do have a lot more optimism on the continent from this new generation. And so therefore, I think that um, there is a, a much better chance this time 
that Africa will sustain its growth path and um, its process of transformation that's underway. Yes, I hope so too. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you wish to stay in the loop or participate in our podcast, please subscribe to the Business and Development Podcast on your usual platform or contact me, Sarah Netter.